Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Let's face it, crew chiefs are chief mechanics as they were once known. Love to see how far they could go with the rule book before NASCAR's police department started pressing charges. It's always been that way, even from the very first time the green flag waved on June 19, 1949, when NASCAR's founder, Bill French Sr., held his first strictly stock race on a small dirt track in downtown Charlotte. From the single page to hundreds of them bound in book form, there they were in black and white spelled out for everyone to see. What to do, what was allowed, and what was expected. Crew chiefs are innovative souls that don't look at rules as what to follow, but rather a place to start looking for loopholes. Instead, they look for what's not there instead of what is. And boy, there have been plenty of crazy things found inside of race cars over the past seven decades. You name it. Many of the mechanics in NASCAR in the early days were shade tree wrench turners that could rebuild a car from bumper to bumper. They were geniuses when it came to making cars filled with moonshine go fast on mountain highways and even faster on racetracks. Engineers in the 1950s and 60s, you could find a few of those up in Detroit among the top three automakers. The rest were the guys that ran trains up and down the railroad tracks. And a lot of those loved to watch races in the grandstands when they had the chance on Sundays. Crew chiefs in NASCAR are simply the best at finding ways around the rules and using them to their advantage. There were times when they came right out, pretty much just rewrote the rules or ignored them altogether. Cheating really is a pretty harsh word when you get right down to it. So, to soften the blow a bit, when NASCAR discovered those illegal engines with nitrous oxide bottles for the boost of speed, the same stuff we'd use when we go to the dentist to get that root canal fixed, well, that was a little bit too aggressive. I guess we should call it uh, innovation. That sounds a whole lot better. So rest assured, NASCAR officials have seen it all. So much so that when NASCAR hired former crew chief Gary Nelson as his Cup Series director in the late 1990s, team owner and former teammate Robert Yates quipped with a laugh, you pretty much eliminate 75% of the cheating. You hired the guy that was doing it. Ah, what fun. To the crew chiefs of the past that were doing the cheating, it wasn't cheating. It's innovation. Hi, everyone. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White. And welcome to episode number 60 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Really, really, really looking forward to this show because it's going to be one of the best topics you are ever going to want to hear or even discuss. You're going to want to talk about this to your friends because we're going to talk about one of the, um, how, how do I say this? One of the 
deep, dark secrets of NASCAR, if you want to call it that. And we're talking about cheating in NASCAR. And obviously a lot of, uh, in the past, you know, it's, it's uh, put not only pushing the envelope, but tearing right through that envelope. And we're going to talk about some of the more uh, well-known episodes of cheating in the sport. And, and we're not, you know, being negative about that, but let's, let's face it. I mean, there were guys that, you know, did uh, try to work around the rules, sometimes outside of the rules to get an advantage. And Ben has got an incredible amount of stories uh, already lined up to talk about today. So Ben, my friend, first of all, uh, you know, good to talk to you again on this episode of, of a lifetime in NASCAR episode 60. And we will be talking about the car number 60 a little bit later in the show, but you know, cheating in NASCAR, you know, it's, it's almost like, uh, like butter and, and bread, you know, they, they kind of go together. We haven't really seen much of late in the you know, last you know, decade or more probably, but back in the day, you know, when the sports started getting going in the late forties into the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, into the, even into the two thousands, you know, there, there was a, uh, you know, an almost a unwritten rule that if you're not cheating, you're not trying as the old saying goes. So, yeah. I mean, Ben, I mean, let, we're going to talk about a, a number of uh, stories that you have about cheating. Tell me in your thoughts, I mean, you've covered this sport for such a long time. Wh- why is it that teams do cheat? I mean, is it just because they want to get a, a he- you know leg up on the other guys or are the other guys so far ahead of them that they've, they've got to you know do some uh, nefarious stuff to try to just stay even with the other guys? I mean, how do you kind of quantify cheating in the sport? Well, uh, I tell you what, Jerry. Uh, well, it's it's a it's a topic. I guess there's so many answers to that. But I think when you're a crew chief or chief mechanic, as they were called uh, for so many years, uh, when you're looking at a rule sheet, is what it used to be, not a rule book. Mm-hmm. And so you, let, let's put it in, in in context here. So you're the guy who is staring at what is to be a race car. When they first started, they were passenger cars. And you said, okay, I got to fix this car to run, uh, what, 50 laps, 100 laps in the early days on some some dirt track somewhere. I got to make it the very best because I got to race against the other 20, 25, 30 cars in the field. So what can I do to this thing to make it perform to its maximum? So he's he's looking at the ruled sheet at the at the time, not as a rule sheet he's looking at it as a place to start almost because he's looking at it as what can i get away with pretty much right and so he's not he's when he's when the the crew chief or chief mechanic is looking at the sheet he's looking at it as reading between the lines a lot of cases because okay this is what it says but what can i do Mm-hmm. And uh, so even in the very first race, June 19th, 1949, uh, there was a driver named Glenn Dunaway. He was actually the driver who took the checkered flag in that very first race. But as NASCAR officials looked at his, uh, I believe it was a Ford he was driving that day, they looked under the car and had leaf springs and not the regular springs that came with the car. That was called a strictly stock race. You had to run what was on the showroom floor, what came with the car, the, the leaf spring did not come on that car that year. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Jim Roper of Kansas was in a Lincoln and he was the second place driver and he was given the victory. So the very first race in NASCAR history, that first time that the strictly stocks ran, even they ran some modifieds before that, but the strictly stock, which is now the cup series, the very first time cars 
were on a racetrack in Charlotte and it was not Charlotte Motor Speedway. It was a, a small dirt track off of Wilkerson Boulevard there. Mm -hmm. The very first time uh, the, they had a problem with someone trying to read between the lines on that uh, particular sheet, telling them what they could and could not do as far as the rules. And so from that day on, crew chiefs, chief mechanics looked at the rules and tried to figure out what can we get away with. And believe me, there's been everything you could possibly imagine done to these race cars to the point where uh, Dick Beatty, who was a former driver turned NASCAR's technical director for many, many years, believe it or not, had a building behind his house. And the building had nothing but parts that had been taken off of race cars over the years and tagged uh, and put there and under lock and key um, of things that had been turned into NASCAR and that's where they were stored for many years. And it showed what the part was, where it came from the race car, whose car it came off of and the date. And it was like a treasure trove of, of illegal parts. And, and Mr. Beatty had it, them on shelves at his home behind the house for many years. What did he, I'm curious, do you know what ever happened to all those parts? And uh, I don't. And some of those, I'm, I'm assuming some of those went to the NASCAR Hall of Fame and there might be some parts that may be on a shelf somewhere at NASCAR's headquarters. I, I really don't, but there were any, everything from, from manifolds to, uh, to carburetor plates to, oh my gosh, you name it, everything that they tried. Uh, throughout the uh, the late 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, I mean, everything you can imagine. But here's the fun part about it, though, Jerry. You know, you had Detroit engineers uh, for the big three, which is short Ford, Chevy, Chrysler, uh, of course, Dodge, uh, under that Chrysler uh, umbrella. Mm -hmm. And they had all kinds of fascinating, wonderful, very highly educated engineers. But the shade tree guys, those guys in NASCAR, could be presented some type of problem and they could solve them as well or better than some of the engineers could. And what the shade tree mechanic types would say, Oh yeah, I know how to fix that. And they'd take it into the back rooms, those rooms that said no admittance, uh, <laughs> do not come in, do not right. pass this, do not pass go as it said in the monopoly games. Right. And they go back in the back rooms and they could fix a part, weld a part, make a part. And believe me, they could come up with whatever it was that, that some of those engineers couldn't come up with. And those are those deep, dark secrets. And believe me, we got a lot to talk about today. Some really cool things that some of these guys had uh, come up with and very innovative uh, things that they found on race cars along the, uh, the years that were like, holy cow, that was pretty, pretty cool. And, and I got a few things I could share. It's, it's a lot of fun to talk about. Right. Well, you know, uh, before we go into specific uh, instances of cheating, I, there's one thing that I've often wondered about this, and maybe, I don't know if you've ever interviewed any of the officials that, you know, are um, tasked, if you will, you know, with both pre and post race inspections to look for, you know, um, Ill illegal parts or, you know, something that's uh, askew of the, of the rules, if you will. I mean, to be a NASCAR official, you know, that's looking at, you know, 40 some cars going through inspection and you know we see so many uh, cars that you know fail inspection they go through once twice sometimes three times and then you know they still fail they push them to the back of the field but you know the the in the past you know when we have seen blatant cheating you know there are so many ways that 
um, you know, the, the, the teams, the crew chiefs, in, in some instances, even the drivers, they've tried to hide what they're doing. I, I'm curious, have you ever talked to any NASCAR officials on the, what they look for, how they find these things? Because sometimes, you know, you're looking at you know, you're, you're basically looking for a, how's the old saying go? You're looking for the, uh, uh, a sow's purse in a cow's ear, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. it, it's so hidden. How do these guys, I mean, is it almost like a sixth sense that they kind of sense that something's just not right here? Or, I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. Well, a lot of times what would happen is they, they weren't looking for it till they found it. If that, that's a very elementary answer, but these guys are so good at hiding what they were trying to uh, to hide. I guess it's a good way to put it that they didn't know to look for it until they accidentally discovered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would hide them in roll bars, whatever this was, or they would hide it in wheel wells or uh, between the the firewalls. You know, they would sometimes they'd come up with some fake firewalls and hide things or. Uh, you know, and, and this kind of gets into some of the things we'll be talking about, but I mean, they're so, so good at, at putting false uh, plates and things like that on particular parts of the race car where there's just no way to find them. And, and uh, gosh, I mean, here's a good, let me just give you a quick example. Um, for instance, some, I know some situations where they would put fake uh, fire extinguishers in the car uh, but the, the fake fire extinguisher might have 10 or 15 pounds of lead in it and they'd run it through inspection. And then when the car got back to the garage area, they put the real fire extinguisher in and that would be 10 or 15 pounds lighter. Same thing with helmets. Uh, in the past, they would line the helmets with lead and hang the helmet inside the race car until they figured out, well, you can't run a, a helmet through inspection because, uh, the, the helmet would be maybe 20 pounds heavier than it should be. And to look at the helmet, you couldn't tell it because an open, open faced helmet had the padding and all that in it, but it was lined with lead. And so when it got on the racetrack, it was 15, 20 pounds lighter than it should have been. And all those little pieces, intricate pieces of the, of the, uh, the puzzle for, you know, it, you might find a car to be 50, 60 pounds lighter than it should be. Of course, that's the, you know, you're zipping through the field, those little pieces of the puzzle adding up to, like I say, a, a car that weighed less over time, uh, a, a driver could make his way up through the field. Uh, they're so innovative. These, these drivers and teams, uh, I can give you just a couple of other quick ones here, but there's a lot to talk about, but say for weight of a race car, this is an old trick that was re- uh, brought back to life in the, uh, late seventies when Daryl Waltrip Nygaard used this trick. They won a bunch of races using it until they got scared and, and stopped doing it. But this is something that was done in the sixties. What they did is they filled the roll bars with buckshot and uh, they would put it in just a little bit at a time at the shop. And then when they got to the racetrack, Daryl Waltrip had a, a, a switch inside the race car and he would radio uh, to the crew during the pace laps and he'd say bombs away. <laughs> well, that meant <laughs> that meant that uh, that he had started the process, and they didn't come out all at once. This buckshot would just trickle out a little bit at a time because you didn't want it all to come out at once because just start breaking the windshields of the cars behind him. So he a little bit at a time it would come out over the period of say a three hour race. 
Dover or say a Bristol, uh, it would all come out. And then the car would be, gosh, as much as say 300 pounds lighter. Well, this went on for several races and they were suspected somebody had the buckshot because it would break a few windshields. And so they were at Nashville, Tennessee, I believe. And finally NASCAR said enough's enough. They uh, jacked the car up, but Gary Nelson was the crew chief and he was smart enough to make the opening of the, where the buckshot was coming out, where the jack stop was. So when they put NASCAR, put the jack on the jack stop, they're home free because that's where it was coming out. And so they weren't going to find it. That's really smart. (laughs) Yeah, very smart. And so, but they were, they said, okay, we know you're doing it. We just can't find it. Like, gosh, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) And you know, but this is an old Harry Hyde trick. You know, Harry Hyde worked with K&K Insurance and worked with Bobby Isaac. And and back, this was done a little bit in the late 60s, but they got close to getting caught doing it. So they stopped doing it. You know, Buddy Parrott was one of the crew members of that. So they kind of stopped doing it. But it's an old Harry Hyde trick. And so resurrected by Gary Nelson and, and uh, those guys. So that, and the, by the way, the car's name was Bertha. And Bertha was this big old, you know, Monte Carlo, uh, Gatorade sponsored car, you know, big as the motor home back in those days, the cars were super big, the, the Dodge chargers and those things. And so they had obviously plenty of room to put the buckshot in there, but they never did get caught doing it, but they stopped before NASCAR found it. Of course, Daryl's talked about this story many times, but you know, like I said, he would flip the, he would flip the switch and that's why he would say bombs away because Bertha was named after a battleship. And these are funny. And they used to name cars too. That was what was so cool. They don't do it anymore. They just have a, like a stock number, which is mm. not very creative, but back in those days, they would name the cars names. And anyway, that's, that's one of many things that they used to do, but weight of a race car had a lot to do with, of course, running better on the racetrack and, and Daryl and those guys did it and, and all kinds of innovative things to make the cars lighter one more quick thing to you jerry before i stop and let you have it back <laughs> i do I, I saw this with my own eyes okay we were at wilkesboro uh terry labani was the driver of junior johnson chevrolet i distinctly saw this happen i didn't say anything about it because i wasn't sure what i was looking at but i do remember a crew member putting a couple of bags of buckshot in the back of the car and it went through inspection and it just fine. And then after that was over, they took the bags of buckshot out and all was well. But I do remember seeing a crew member put buckshot in the back of Terry's car and it went through inspection and weighed just fine. And then when he got back to the garage area, they took the buckshot out. So I saw that with my own eyes. There you go. That's okay. all I'm going to say about that. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you one other question. I know you got a bunch of other stories you want to regale us with. I'm going to ask you this, and this, this may be a a difficult question to answer, but, you know, looking at all the, you know, hundreds of crew chiefs we've had over the years, all the you know, engineers, you know, the mechanics, the drivers, the team owners, who was number one when it came to cheating? Or is there a way to even quantify who was the best uh, at pulling the wool over NASCAR's eyes? Oh, I, I, there's no question in my mind. This is a personal opinion. But I just have to say Smokey Eunuch. That's uh, what I was going to say the same thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, right, right, right. yeah Smokey Eunuch. Yeah, Smokey, see, you got to understand, Smokey Eunuch and Bill France Sr., I won't say they were enemies, but they really loved to, to poke each other. And 
it all started back in 1957 at the Southern 500 when when Smokey had a couple of his cars get crashed out of that race uh, with his couple of his drivers. I think it was Fonnie Flock and Herb Thomas. I want to say drove his cars that year, and both of them got wrecked out. And he didn't think that was the right thing. He thought that the cars that wrecked him, I think Lee Petty was one of the ones that wrecked. Uh, I think Fonnie Flock and in, in the wreck there, and he he was uh, adamant about getting some payback from Bill Frantz Senior, who was the founder of NASCAR. He thought that that should they should have been parked or fined or something. I don't think anything happened. So after that happened, they were not best of friends. I don't think Christmas cards were exchanged <laughs> right. between the two of them. So with that said, they were not the best of friends. And Smokey's garage was right down the road from NASCAR headquarters. And, you know, there's the famous story about Smokey being at Daytona International Speedway in the, the late 60s. And he had that little famous little number 13 black and gold Chevelle he had down there. And he had another of uh argument with bill senior one of many and he said fine i don't need to be here i don't need to be in nascar you know basically take this job and shove it <laughs> and he took the gas tank out of the car and put it in the car or took it out of the car left it sitting there and drove the car back to his shop without the gas tank what that that is the story that's been told many times in many oh. versions <laughs> and obviously there was gas somewhere in the tank now if i'm telling it correctly and again there's 16 versions of the story i think what happened was this smoky interpreted the rules as to say you have to have so many sizes of a gas this is the particular size of gas tank you have to have but there was nothing in the rules that said what size fuel line you have to have. So most cars were using a half inch gas line and Smokey had put like a two inch plumbing pipeline mm -hmm. in the car. So that particular day, he basically taped up one end of that gas line that had a ton of gas in the gas line and took the gas tank out and he had enough gas to, drive it four miles or something down the road <laughs> on the highway back to the shop. But that's a true story. It took the gas to hey, I, I think what sparked the, the argument was that we know you're illegal and we're going to cut your car up to find out where you're illegal. And he said, hell no, you're not. And, and I can do whatever I want to with my race car. And then he took the tank out and drove it back to the shop. That's the way in other words, you're right, but I'm not going to tell you where it is. Jesus. <laughs> One of those deals, but that's a true story too. Wow. Now, again, there's 16 and a half different ways that, that story has been told. And I might be slightly off to be fair, but that he did drive the car back to his shop, which was called Smokey's, you know, the best damn town, best damn shop in town. Right. Uh, and uh, our best damn garage in town. Let me say it right. And Smokey was, you know, he would try anything, and 99% of that was just to get under Bill France Sr.'s skin. He he was a very innovative team owner. Uh, he was the best at building engines. Uh, he tried running cars at the Indianapolis 500. Uh, he, you know, he won some races, uh, had some great drivers in his cars. But, yeah, he was a very innovative uh, team owner and mechanic and crew chief and the, the one of the very best, but yeah, he, 
and and there's other things he would do too. Now I, I've read this, I can't confirm it, but talking about the the gas tanks, what he would do is he would put deflated basketballs <laughs> in in the tank, and then he would somehow reinflate the basketball. They would or basketballs. They would put check it for uh, you know the size of. Uh, the, the gas tank, which I'm sure was oversized. And then they would, uh, you know, reinflate them. And in other words, he would have a bigger gas tank than he was supposed to, but he would inflate them when they were checking them to say, oh yeah, you're fine. And then he would have more gas tank than he was supposed to have, if that makes any sense, if I right. explained right. it right. right. So he would do all kinds of stuff like that just to get under NASCAR skin and inspect your skin and Believe me, if he knew how a way to get more gas into a race car and more power into an engine, he he figured it out. But he was one of those types that had one of those no admittance, do not come in this room types or you'll be shot type of guys. He didn't want anybody to know what he was doing behind closed doors. And a lot of those guys back in those days did it that way. They didn't, especially the engine guys. You just, if you had no business in an engine room, you weren't allowed in there. A lot of tricks were going on back in those days. Right, right, right. That's, 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 I mean, you know, the creativity, the, the guts, and there's another word I can use, but we're not going to use it because this is a family show, but yeah, I think yeah. you know which word I'm talking about kind of goes along with guts. Um, the, the ability for these guys back in the day to, you know, do what they did. And really there was, I mean, there, yeah, there were fears of repercussion. There were fears mm-hmm. of penalty. There were fears of, you know, getting caught. But, you know, it almost seemed like the risk versus reward, the risk was more, was worth the reward because, you know, invariably it would help give them some kind of an advantage. Uh, whereas today we don't really see that much because, you know, the inspections are so, you know, uh, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll find a little pebble in a, in a land of, you know, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, an entire beach of sand, so to speak. Right. But, right. But, yeah. You know, looking well, at, at the stories you've got, I mean, what, what's the number one, I mean, other than, you know, we, we talked about Smokey Eunuch here for a few minutes, but I mean, is there one absolutely glaring, uh, episode or incident that just quantifies the lengths a team or a crew chief or whatever went to 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 you know to, to get that advantage. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I don't like to use the word cheat because a lot of times you know guys didn't consider it cheating. They were looking at it as just trying to get an advantage on the next the next guy. Yeah, yeah, cheating's a little a little harsh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know what I yeah, mean? I'll say, I say innovative innovation, <laughs> right. um, imagination, maybe those are better words, but yeah, this is a, I could tell you a story that's that actually had NASCAR's blessings and it was so blatant that it was comical. And this happened, uh, August 7th, 1966 in Atlanta, what is now Atlanta motor speedway is actually Atlanta international raceway at the time. Let me give you a little backstory. Ford Motor Company had elected to boycott NASCAR. And this happened several times with General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, because there'd be times that they didn't agree with the rules. Uh, It's various decades, various times throughout NASCAR history because of, say, the Hemi engine or allowing it, disallowing it, whatever the case may be. And, And a little side story to that, there was a time in 1965, when Chrysler had a ton of heavy Hemi engines, excuse me, ready to go 
and uh, Bill France Sr. said, no, we're not going to allow them. Mm -hmm. And they're like, holy cow, what do you mean? We're ready to go. We can't. So Petty Enterprises, Richard Petty actually turned to, to drag racing. And Richard Petty, for a time, was a drag racer, believe it or not, in 65. Mm -hmm. And then later in the year, I got back into doing some NASCAR stuff. For, for many months, he was a drag racer because of the rules. But back to my story, August 7th, 1966, Ford uh, elected earlier a month or two earlier not to uh continue in nascar so junior johnson had retired from driving in 1966 he hires fred lorenzen and fred in that time of course was a big star uh he had won 26 races uh the golden boy uh very very popular and had been driving for home and moody so what does junior do he takes a 1966 ford uh, and does some major modifications to the car. It was yellow, number 26. Mm -hmm. the, the, the top was lowered. The sides were lowered. The, um, the, the, it was narrowed. The windshield was raked back. This car looked like it was a, a modified car entered into the Cup Series, what was in the Grand National Series. I mean, this thing was so modified, everybody called it the yellow banana. <laughs> it was right. so terribly miscued, but NASCAR said, well, you know what? It'd be kind of cool if we let you run this thing because we need people in the stands. So, so the Petties and the Allisons and the Bakers like, what are you talking about? I mean, this thing is so aerodynamically miscued that, I mean, it don't even look like a Ford. It yeah. looks like, looks like somebody went to a body shop and had six beers too many and, <laughs> Yeah, it's like this thing don't even look like a Ford. So, but NASCAR said, yeah, but we're going to let you, we're going to allow it and we're going to let you run it. But it made all kinds of headlines and see, this is, this is sort of the magic of Bill France senior. He loved uh, the headlines. He loved getting press. He loved whatever way he could to get the name NASCAR out there uh, in the morning edition, the evening edition, the afternoon edition. This is the next big controversy, but, not a bad controversy, just enough to get people to read about what's going on down at the Atlanta International Raceway in Hampton, Georgia. Let's see what's going on down there, okay? So as it turns out, uh, Lorenzen got into some problems with the car, crashed the car on lap 139 of the race, kind of, you know, ended the hype early. But, I mean, that was one of those times that NASCAR blatantly said, this car is so illegal, you know, my grandmother could drive it, but okay, let's do it anyway. And so it was, it didn't make people very happy that we're running against the car, but their strategy was, yeah, just let it run. He's not going to win anything with it. Just let it run. And as it turns out, that's the way the thing won, uh, was now if Bill France senior gets what he wants. Uh, somebody else wins the race. Junior gets what he wants. Everybody wins. But it was one of those rare times that uh, that NASCAR said, yeah, it's okay to run it. But, boy, was it illegal. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know, looking back at, at the day, I mean, and th this may be a difficult question to answer, but when you look at the, the instigators, that's a good way of phrasing it, um, the instigators that were the most creative that that tried to push the envelope as much as possible. The one thing that I've always it's kind of amazed me is that the guys that for the most part 
that did push the envelope, that did, you know, um, try to work outside of the rules, if you will, or, or use the rules to their advantage, were the best teams. Now, and, and what I mean by that is they were already the best teams. They were already the good teams. And, you know, sure, if they were doing something illegal, it may have enhanced that ability to be one of the best or one of the good teams. But, you know, when 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 you're looking at some of the smaller teams or like I like to call them the B tier teams, you know, the, the teams that weren't that successful, they didn't they didn't push the envelope. They didn't, you know, let's let's call the word as we we you know we don't like to use that word, but they didn't cheat like the bigger, more successful teams. Yeah. Am I wrong? In, in no. Right. No, and I can tell you why. Because partly why? Because okay. if you're a top team, um, you can pay the fine. If you're, yep. yeah, if you're a backmarker team and you get caught and you're, and NASCAR says it's a $50,000 fine and you're, and you're fined that money and you can't race for 12 weeks or six weeks, you know, you're an essence side of business. I mean, you don't, you just don't have the money to do it where a top team can absorb some of that and, and, you know, continue on. But I think that's, that's the main, main reason why some of the back markers just can't do it because okay. especially in that era, because you see back in that time, you had what was called independent drivers. When I say that those guys would race one another in the back of the pack. And when I say independent, they just didn't have the backing from Ford, Chevy, Dodge, Mercury. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the, the backing from the, the main Detroit automakers. They would buy secondhand parts or, and a lot of people don't realize this, but when Richard Childress was driving race cars back in the seventies until he retired in 81 to get Dale Earnhardt, he was actually running parts for junior Johnson's team as somewhat of a test driver for them. In other words, if there was something they wanted to try, say a new power steering pump or a new wheel or a new, something like that, they junior would say, would you run it for us? Mm -hmm. And he would do that, and he would get a lot of used parts from Junior to run his end quote independent team. So yeah, he was he was sort of a satellite team in a way for Junior's mm -hmm. team, and uh, and got a lot of his parts from Junior Johnson's teams back in those days. So yeah, I mean when and again when I say independent guys, they knew going into that race they really had absolutely no shot at winning the race, but they would run 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, and they would race within them among themselves a race within a race to see who could you know who could win uh, among the five or six or eight teams in that group of people, and then they'd buy a steak dinner this week or something. Like that. <laughs> right, right, they right. didn't have a lot of money, no, and and that's why they didn't want to take some of those chances. But at the same time. There were some like the DK Ulrichs uh, that would possibly try that. And I could tell you a story that happened. I don't recall the race that it happened, but he actually crashed. DK Ulrich was a backmarker independent driver who was running nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas. And laughing gas, if you pump, pump that into a carburetor and mix it with fuel, it would make you run a whole lot faster, like, yep. Yep. like 50 horsepower faster. And a lot of drivers would run that and raw teams would run that be great. All well and good till you get caught with it. Right. And, but he crashed and, and when they were loading the car up on the, on the flatbed, they noticed that NASCAR officials noticed it. Then he got canned for 12 weeks. 
had he not crashed, they probably would have not found it because it was buried in the, uh, in one of the fender wells and nicely hidden and they would have never found it. Right. So, yeah. So they've, some of those guys have tried some things, but they got heavily fined and, and suspended for many weeks when they did get caught. I, I'm curious when, you know, when we talk about uh, guys that have cheated over the years, um, you know, and, and I'm not trying to draw a, well, I guess I kind of am trying to draw a comparison because, you know, we talk about the, the modern day, the new car, the next generation car, you know, and a lot of those parts are essentially from either, they're either NASCAR suppliers, providers, what have you. Back in the day, though, did NASCAR ever think about, well, one way to maybe either cut down or maybe totally eliminate some of these um, nefarious uh, elements of, you know, cheating, pushing the envelope, whatever you want to talk, however we want to phrase it. Did they ever think about just saying, well, you know, if you're going to run, you know, XYZ shocks, those are approved by NASCAR. If you're going to run ABC carburetor, that's approved by NASCAR. But, you know, back in the day, there was just so much latitude given to teams to, you know, build their own parts or, you know, do, do whatever. I mean, what the, their, their neighbor driver was going to do or neighbor car was going to do was completely different than what they were going to do. Was there a thought back then to, you know, maybe have some better oversight of parts and, you know, require them being made by a certain manufacturer, um, you know, without trying to show favoritism to that manufacturer? No, I don't think so. Because even if you look at some of the racetracks back in those days, if you look, uh, money wasn't very uh, plentiful for uh, in the NASCAR side, in the team side. And what I was getting ready to say was, if you look back at some of the YouTube uh, broadcasts of, say, even the 73, 45 Darlington races, or say the Dar- uh, Daytona 500s back in those days, vast, vast amount of difference between what we see today and back then. You can see where the, the tracks no disrespect to NASCAR at all. And I don't mean it that way at all, but they just, there wasn't a lot of money to make repairs to the racetracks. It was minimal. And the, the grasses of the tracks, uh, grass areas, the, the, you know, the buildings, the, the infrastructures, it's wasn't a lot of money there. Mm -hmm. So with that said, there wasn't really a lot of money to be spent on trying to regulate some of that, Plus, it was just, it was true stock cars being run in that era. Uh, and a lot of what you saw in that era on the cars themselves, like I've heard Leonard Wood tell me and Bobby Allison tell me, even Richard Petty tell me that the tops and the, the sides and the trunk leaves, there was very little uh, that was manufactured. They were true cars that came off showroom floors or parts that were sent to them from Detroit, let's say it that way, as far as body parts mm-hmm. and chassis parts. They were not uh, built as race cars, maybe as they are today. These were cars that were shipped right out of Detroit for quarter panels, fenders, hoods, tops, and then they were put together like built from builders like uh, Laughlin and, and Banjo Matthews and course a lot of teams that did build their own chassis so i think wood brothers did but 
Yeah, they were just there were there was really no time. I guess maybe that's part of it too, to regulate some of these parts uh, and do it that way. They were true blue, out of Detroit stock cars for many many years, and uh, not like today. Did and I'm curious about this. <clears throat> you know the old saying, "Birds of a feather flock together." We're you know we're talking about guys in the '50s, '60s, '70s, '80s, even into the '90s. Did teams that pushed the envelope the teams that and again we're going to use that word i hate to use that word but teams that cheated mm-hmm. did they kind of compare notes with other teams that also cheated i'm curious i think to the degree of how do you think i'm going to get caught doing this <laughs> <laughs> <I'll> be, <laughs> uh, what's the what's the risk factor i right. mean and uh, yeah i think maybe so because uh, take for instance i know of some instances to where there were some extra five gallon gas tanks in some cases. Some of those were ro- located underneath the uh, uh, the floor pans. Some of that was in the roll bars too. I've heard um, it's hard to find places because see, as as time went on, NASCAR learned where all the tricks were. Uh, there, you kind of limited as to how you could do some of that because remember, if you're running a fuel, an extra fuel tank, you got to have an extra fuel line. And so, yeah, some of that was a little hard to disguise because you, you'd have to go into the carburetor. Now, one of the things that some of these teams tried to do was, you know, running a, a fake uh, carburetor plate, for instance. I do remember this, and I'm trying to tell this correctly. Back in 70, 71, there was the, some of the teams were using, at least one prominent team was using a, a retractable carburetor plate that could be managed from under the dashboard. And once you got on the racetrack, uh, you could flip this particular prominent team. I want to say Charlie Gwatt's back, Junior Johnson. He could flip a switch and this particular carburetor plate would pull back. And of course he could run like Jack the bear after that. I mean, he could really fly on the racetrack. That got discovered, um, but again, if you're running a again running a, a gas related situation, you you need you'll you're going to have to have a, an extra fuel tank situation there. I, but a lot of teams would try their best to figure out other parts of the race car to get better fuel mileage. Uh, but we mentioned nitrous oxide before too. That was something a lot of teams tried. And I want to give you an example of that. 1976, A.J. Foyt, Dave Marcus, Darrell Waltrip for the Daytona 500 tried using nitrous oxide in their cars. Of course, they qualified really well. I think A.J. was on the pole that year. Dave Marcus second. I think Darrell was third, if I'm not telling it incorrectly. And then, of course, NASCAR found it. And uh, Terry Ryan and uh, Ramos Stott ended up being on the pole and on the outside of the front row. I remember that. Uh, so that they got caught doing that. So nitrous oxide is something that's a great booster as far as, uh, getting horsepower. The bad news is you got to contain it. You got to hide it. And once NASCAR found it and they found it in all kinds of places, you know, flat containers, round containers, you name it, they found it. And then it's a real no, no, when they do find it, I don't know when the last time someone ran it, but, uh, it's 
it really helps and it really works until you get caught. <laughs> One other question I wanted to ask you. I know you got a few more stories to to you know share with us, but I got to ask you this. You know, in your covering NASCAR over the last 35, 40 years, is there one incident in particular that just absolutely blows you away, even to this day, about the creativity, the ingenuity, the the the, the sheer guts to hmm. do something they did? I mean, is there one thing that just absolutely, to this day, still amazes you that they had the gall to try to do something and they got away with it until they got caught? Um, well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I don't know how in the world structure of things, I don't know how big, but I, to me, everything's big, really. <laughs> well, I, yeah, there's one, I mean, the one that really comes to mind, 2006, uh, Jimmy Johnson, Chad Canals, when, when Chad set up something in the back of the car to make the rear glass move. Uh, for aerodynamic purposes, I don't know how in the world. I'm not an engineer. Let me want to qualify that uh, to say that going in because there had to be something very innovative to make this work and not get caught with it. He did get caught with it and got suspended. I think three races, some way or another, they had worked it out to where the back glass could move to where it would help the aerodynamics. That was what uh, 2006, what 15, 16 years ago. Um, and of course, Chad got suspended. That was pretty bold. Uh, a couple of things come to mind. Of course, 1983, Maurice Petty had built an engine for Richard Petty's uh, victory there at Charlotte, uh, where, he, if I'm telling it correctly, he used paraffin wax in the engine to where when the engine got hot, the paraffin would melt and it increased the cubic inch ratio inside the race car. They come up with that i mean come on I, mean, uh, I don't i don't know exactly and I, that's that's still a mystery to me how that would work i need i would need to talk to an engine guy like my son aaron to figure that one out but some way it went from 358 cubic inches to like 390 something and holy it, it was it was huge by the end of the race and i don't have to tell our listeners and you too i don't understand how that worked but i, I can tell you a funny story though after the thing was over with and NASCAR measured the engine and figured out, well, this is way bigger than it should be. Richard was walking around uh, trying to figure out what they were going to do. And Rick Hendrick and Harry Hyde were sitting in a car there close by. And, you know, Harry Hyde, I think, was uh, not, well, not working for Rick Hendrick at the time, but it was going to be the next year. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were working on talking about working for him then for 1984. But uh, Harry Hyde rolled the window down and for some reason he called Richard Hank. I don't know where the, where the nickname came from, but he looked at Richard and said, Hank, what's the, what's the story, big boy, what's going on? And he said, Oh boy. Oh, Maurice. Oh, chief. As he called him, chief's got me in trouble. I said that motor's pretty big. And he said, Oh, don't worry about it. I said, let the thing cool off a little bit. It'll be all right. It, usually when they cool off, they kind of calm down on the cubic inches and he, uh, Richard lowered the sunglasses and, you know, had the old hat on he normally wears. He said, let me tell you boys something. He said, you stick that thing in Antarctica and it's not going to get any smaller. <laughs> oh, that's I a mean, great one. That's, that's a, a true one. story. He said, that thing's not going to get any smaller. He knew that he was caught and 
I don't know how that works, but somehow there was some something to do with making it start off as a 358 and got bigger as the day went on. And Darrell Waltrip did say uh, when he passed him late in the race, he said, he didn't just pass me. He went by me like I was sitting still. And he said, I knew something was up. He said, because I had my foot on the floor and he passed me like I was like parked. And he said there, there was something wrong with that engine. So he went to NASCAR and went to, you know, uh, uh, Junior Johnson, his team owner, and said, you need to look into that. And they filed a protest and the rest is history. But yeah, and there's something else. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Not, not, I hate to interrupt you, but I, I've got to ask you this. Okay, yeah. so Daryl Waltrip goes to Junior Johnson, says, Junior, you need to go talk to NASCAR about this car that I think is, you know, is, is not right. But Daryl was kind of in that same boat when it came to nefarious pushing the envelope i mean isn't that kind of like of course yeah there was a lot of kettles that were called black by a lot of drivers (laughs) yeah yeah, for sure i mean there was a lot of times when and i know i've heard bobby allison tell me this many times they said you know there was the left side tires and the right side tires you know you're not supposed to have lefts on the right rights on the lefts etc and NASCAR would look at Bobby's car and they'd look right over at Daryl's and say, well, Hey, he's got left sides on the right of his car. And said, we're not looking at your, we're not looking at your, his car. We're looking at your car. Right. Right. I mean, that kind of stuff went on all the time. And, and, you know, Daryl would say, I have to, and Bobby said it too. He said, I'd have to cheat to keep up with everybody else. If I didn't cheat, I'd be left. I'd be 10 laps down. I have if he, this guy down that right over there is cheating. I've got to cheat to stay up with him. And there's some truth to that. If you got, I mean, again, I hate to use that word, but I mean, if, the, if everybody else in the field is pushing the envelope, you can't sit back and not push the envelope. I'm yep. not a big fan of, see, I would make a horrible crew chief. <laughs> I would, I'd make a horrible car salesman, I, you know, because that's like, I would not, I would be the one to say, okay, I'm, this is what it says. And this is what I'm going to do. But you're you know, too honest, brother. I, I am. I am. I'm totally too <laughs> honest. I would, I would not make a good crew chief because they look to be a crew chief. You're, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but they're looking at like, oh, this is the starting point of what I need to do to, to read between the lines and figure out what needs to be done. And I look at the rules as like, okay, this is what I have to do. And this is what, you know, it'd be a wonderful world if everybody would, you know, follow that, but they're not going to, they're going, they look at it. Like this is, this is not what it, this is what it says, but let's look at what it doesn't say. Mm-hmm. And that's how you, that's how you have to interpret it. And they don't look at it. Most of them don't look at it like there's anything wrong. This is just where we need to start looking to figure it out. So, and that, and, you know, I mean, here's a good example of, and this is how one of the reasons why templates came into play. Now, uh, the banana car I was telling you about earlier, that's one of the reasons the template came into play, even though NASCAR just blessed it, uh, holy, 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 when that car rolled in the gates in 66, after that template sort of came into play. But there's another reason templates came into play, and that was 1984, when Junior Johnson, again, Junior was an innovator, let's say that, when Daryl Waltrip and Neil Bonnet were running for him. If you go to the Talladega Interna- Talladega Super Speedway and go to the International Motorsports Hall of Fame and you walk in there with a tape measure 
and you see if they still have them on display. I think they do. Mm -hmm. If you look at the number 11 Budweiser car and the number 12 Budweiser car, and they're sitting side by side, if you were to put it, and I don't know if you can reach it, they might have it roped off. But if you if you looked at the two cars and, and with your eyes, you can't tell the difference. I've been told, and I think I'm right, if you were to measure the number 11 car and measure the number 12 car from 1985, the number 12 car is six inches narrower on the front end than the number 11 car. And it's three inches on one side and three inches on the other, but you can't tell it by looking at the two cars. Hmm. But you see those types of things. And that's again, body, body templates on the tops and on the sides. A lot of that kind of stuff came into play because the innovative, you know, factors that have come into these bodies the chassis, the all these things that these guys have come up with, of course, being narrower, helped Neil to suck up to the back of other cars on the super speedways. Mm -hmm. And but again, if you looked at both cars, the twelve car is six inches narrower than the eleven. You think, well, that just wouldn't make a lot of difference. Well, yeah, it would. And but you can't tell it by looking at them. But if you put a tape measure on both cars, I've been told then one car is narrower than the other. Little things like that really do add up and make a difference. That's interesting. That's interesting. What, now, um, you, you, you mentioned you had a number of other stories. Do you have anything else that, that um, uh, we want to discuss? Because we know we, we're going to talk a little bit about the car number 60, like we normally do on every episode. We, we talk about car number histories. But you know, any other interesting stories you have about pushing the envelope or uh, cheating but not cheating? If, if you yeah, like yeah. Well, I have one more I want to share real quick, sure. and that's the uh, the 1997 number 24 car that Jeff Gordon ran in uh, the all-star race at Charlotte Motor Speedway. That being a special all-star race, non-points race, from what I understand, that car was extremely innovative for 1997 mm -hmm. to the point where NASCAR basically told uh then Ray, crew chief Ray Everham and Jeff Gordon to never bring it back to a racetrack. Right. I've heard that story, right? Yeah. And it was so uh, innovative and so nicely built. They called it T-Rex. Right. But the car was, it was just wicked fast. It was very low to the ground. I mean, everything you could think of this, if, if this was a dream, what would I do to a race car to make it the very best? Because the rules to a degree, we're not, they're enforced, but this is, if you're going to have a stage to where you can play around with a race car, this is it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's, that's one of the cool cars. I think it's still in the Hendrick Motorsports Museum over there, but can you imagine NASCAR saying, love you, but don't bring it back ever, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause it's so good that we just don't we really want you to bring it back ever. Well, maybe and, NASCAR was also embarrassed that they they was just so uh, you know out there that you know NASCAR said, well, we couldn't. There were so many things we couldn't catch there. I mean, we probably would get you know we'd find five, and there were probably ten other ones we couldn't find. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, other teams kind of walked by it and looked at it. It's like crap. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> you know, one of those deals. And it's like, well, it's too late for us to go back to the shop and build our own. But boy, that would have been cool if I'd have thought of that. One of those deals. And. Right. So that's just, that's something else that, that came to mind, but 
Yeah, it's over in the in the Hendrick Motorsports Museum, and it'd be kind of fun to go look at it. I mean, so the, to you and I, we may not notice some things, but to a crew member or a crew chief or something like that, they, you know, it's it's been deemed as one of the coolest NASCAR cars ever. But it found its home in the uh, in the museum's probably where it needs to be. And <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see them bring it out and put it on the track. Just I mean, just, just to, you know, just. Uh, an exhibition race and not a race, but even an exhibition drive just to see, you know, I mean, 20 some years later, could it, or almost 30 years, some years later, could it you know, still, it would still kick over, would still be able to, to do something. I, I oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. They, they could pull the motor and it may not even have motor in it now, but they could pull the motor out and, and uh, refurbish it. And it would be cool uh, if Marcus Smith of Charlotte Motor Speedway is listening, it'd be kind of fun to pull the car out and, and, Heck, you know, maybe have Jeff turn a few laps in it just for fun, for kicks and giggles, and bring it back out. 97, 2007, 25 years. Yeah, that'd be a good, yeah, that's right. right. That'd be kind of fun to have him pull the thing back out, just run a few laps in it and and bring it back. But that's, I've always heard that one was just, if you could think of everything that would be really neat to run, but we're scared to ask, that would be it. But I think it's sort of like the 81. Pontiac Le Mans that Bobby Allison took to Daytona with Waddell Wilson mm-hmm. that was discovered by Davey Allison in the car room, uh, uh, showroom, car dealership showroom. And nobody saw it coming. Nobody looked at it in the rule book, even though it was there. One of those type stories that uh, it'd be just kind of fun. That was one. Um, I'm not really, uh, that's probably all that we can talk about today because of time, but there's just been so many things that have come down the pike in NASCAR's 74-year history. But I think it's interesting from the very day that that first green flag dropped in Charlotte at Wilkerson Boulevard on that half-mile dirt, somebody was already thinking about, uh, you know, what can I do to get better? What can I do to skirt the rules? Or what can I do to be innovative about the rules? Not trying to cheat, just trying to see what I can do to have a better run. And it started with Glenn Dunaway with those leaf springs on the bottom of that Ford he was driving. And from that day on, everybody has been looking a little bit to see, oh, I've got one more real quick one that I want to share. Mm-hmm. And uh, in talking to Richard Petty recently, he was telling me about this. There's two versions of this story. Dale Inman tells one, Richard Petty tells one. Richard tells, well, let me start with Dale Inman. Dale Inman, this is talking about 1968, Daytona 500. They ran a vinyl top on the 1968 Plymouth Roadrunner for the 1968 Daytona 500 at Petty Enterprises. Mm -hmm. Dale Edmund tells the story that a crew member kind of messed up the top the night before they were going to leave for the the 500. And so the quick fix was to put a vinyl top on the car and put a 43-on decal on it and take it to Daytona. And it had everybody up in arms down in Daytona. What have they found? What's going on? What are they doing? As it turned out, the vinyl top began coming up during the race. There's a photo of Richard Petty on the hood of the car, beating it back down, uh, trying to get it fixed during the race, and it caused him some problems. I had to put some duct tape on it. And talking to Richard recently, he told me, he said, no, that wasn't totally it. He said they started looking at a golf ball and looking at all the little holes, little, what do you call those little divots or whatever in the golf ball. Right. And thought, okay, that makes the golf ball go straight. 
there's something scientific about that in a golf ball. So let's try this on the top of the car and see if that helps us somehow on the racetrack. No kidding. I'm not making this up. And so that was the thinking behind running the vinyl top on the car in 1968 about the aerodynamics, about something, you know, in relation, correlation to a golf ball. Let's try this. Didn't work out so good, but that was what the, the thinking was, according to Richard Petty. And so, uh, you know, two different versions of that. Um, was it cheating? No, because it didn't say that in the, you can't run a vinyl top in the rule book. Did it work? Mm, not so, not so good, but it, it nobody said, uh, NASCAR didn't say in the rule book, you can't run a vinyl top, but it did have everybody in the garage area scratching their heads thinking, oh my gosh, what did they find? Are they going to be a real problem? And as it turned out, it didn't work out. So eh, just a little track fact there for you, but interesting story. Exactly. You know, one thing before we get into talking about the car numbers, number 60, because this is episode 60 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. But one you mentioned Ray Abraham, uh, you know, with the 97 T-Rex car in the All-Star race. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, we have a lot of listeners that run the gamut, you know, in, in a, terms of ages, a lot of uh, old time race fans, because obviously they, they want to they love hearing your stories that you're you share with us. But we have a lot of younger fans that maybe uh, either may or may not have heard of some of the names like a Smokey Eunuch, uh, Junior Johnson. I mean, certainly they, they've heard of them, but maybe they can't really readily identify with them from back in the day. But let, let's 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 look at, let's say let's say the last 30 years from 90, let's say from 1990 to now. I mean, that's a fair, a good uh, envelope of time. Who would you consider were among the guys that, um, you know, in that period that people today, especially the younger race fans would um, maybe not so much identify with, but would know who they are. Um, I mean, obviously you mentioned Ray Everham, Chad can also be another one we probably could talk about, but is there anybody else that comes to mind over the last 30 some years that, you know, was really quote unquote, an innovator uh, that the, the younger fans of today might have a, a better understanding of who they were in this period of time, as opposed to, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Oh, well, uh, yeah. One that, that comes to mind immediately would be Kirk Schumerdine, who oh, was, yeah, forgot about him, right? Yeah, who was uh, Del Earnhardt's crew chief uh, in the uh, 80s and early 90s. Andy Petrie is another one that that I think is one of the coolest guys in the world as far as a crew chief. And I love the story he told me about how he put some three quarter inch plywood on the floor of Harry Gant's cars because his feet were burning. So he said, and Harry said, being the construction guy that Harry Gant is, it still is. Gosh, how old is he? 80 or something, 75. Yep. Yep. He says, just put me a piece of three quarter inch plywood in there. That'll work. He said, what? He said, that's going to burn up. It's, no, it's not. I promise it's not. So, uh, our, you know, recently I was talking to Andy about that and he said, yeah, that, that piece of plywood's still in that old number 33 car that Harry Gant drove. And, you know, it, it's little things. These guys would think about tiny things that would make such a big difference. Andy was one of them. Mm -hmm. Of course, I got to go back to, I mean, Dale Inman, always a huge, huge fan of Dale Inman. Great guy. He's one of the old school guys, but I still love seeing him at the racetrack. Oh gosh. I'm just trying to think. Um, Oh, well, Tim Brewer, who worked with Junior Johnson all those years, too. 
um, is, was a crew chief with Neil Bonnet. Um, man, I'm just on the spot here, but Larry, Larry McReynolds. Yeah. Larry McReynolds. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that, uh, Larry was a longtime crew chief for, uh, you know, actually he started off a crew chief for Mark Martin when Mark Mm -hmm. first came into cup series racing before he got into uh, working with Jack Roush. Larry McReynolds is a super, super smart guy when it comes to turning wrenches on race cars. Um, uh, you know, just gosh, um, Jeff Hammond, that's another one. Yep. Yep. Great. You know, Jeff, Jeff Hammond worked with uh, some of the independent teams before he got a job with junior Johnson working with Daryl Walter, Ben Kiel Yarborough and, and uh, Jeff's going to be on our show very soon coming up in the next week or two uh, to talk about those guys. The boy talk about a contrast between Daryl Walter and Kale. Kale had five words to say a week and, <laughs> you know, and Daryl five words to say a second. So, I mean, that's what, one of the things we're going to talk about in the coming weeks uh, with, with Jeff Hammond coming on the show, but yeah, it's just going to be a lot of fun with him, but yeah, just a lot of crew chiefs that are so, so smart uh up you know through through the ranks and and that's what made him so good in the cup series all these years the highest form of stock car racing in the world being run and operated these top dollar million dollar teams by some of these guys that grew up just like us pulling engines out of uh on chains out of oak trees under oak trees mm-hmm. you know just but they're so smart. That's what's, that's what gets me. They just know how to do it and they know how to make our car go fast. And I don't know. I just love all these guys. They're just so much fun to talk to. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're coming out of turn four, heading towards the finish line for today's episode of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And as we do every single week, we always uh, quantify the episode uh, number of the show with a race car number. And since this is episode 60 of the lifetime in NASCAR podcast, we're going to talk about the number 60 in NASCAR. And Ben, uh, interesting, some, some interesting names you mentioned here. I'm looking at the notes you sent me. Tim Flock uh, was in, in the race that, um, you know, that, uh, uh, the, well, it was a 60th race, like you were saying. But, uh, you know, just let, let's start off with, you know, the, the number 60 and, and the, the significance that number has uh, in, in the sport. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, number 60, uh, the 1960 Grand National now Cup Series champion Rex White was crowned champion October 30th, 1960 at Atlanta Motor Speedway. What is that now? It used to be Atlanta International Raceway, as we said earlier, over Ned Jarrett. He started that race eighth and he finished fifth. And that year he had six wins, 25 top fives, 35 top tens, and three pole positions uh, that year. And uh, Rex White still with us. Great, great friend of ours. And as I've told you before, uh, Jerry, we think we're related. We're 17th cousins, <laughs> four times removed, but we somehow we think we're related. So I hope we are. Well, hopefully he gives you a Christmas c- a gift every single year and you too as well. <laughs> yeah, not, not a gift, but eh, maybe a phone call. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then tell us about, um, you know, the the 60th uh, ever NASCAR race that was held as well, too. That is yeah, a- I thought this was kind of interesting, too. The 60th race in NASCAR was held on October 14th, 1951 at a town called Shippenville, Pennsylvania. It was a 200-lap race on a half-mile dirt track, and it was won by Tim Flock with John McKinley finishing second, Billy Carden third, Jimmy Florian fourth, Lloyd Moore fifth, 
and it was uh, 20 cars in that race. And you might ask the question, where are the pennies and the, uh, and those types of guys, the fireball Roberts and those guys, uh, why were they not in the race? Actually, it's one of those races where you had two cup series or grand national races on the same day. Mm-hmm. And all those guys uh, were racing at Martinsville that day. So we had some names in the uh, Pennsylvania race that were not quite as familiar, but, uh, anyway, Tim flock, which was a driver who was familiar, uh, was racing in Pennsylvania while his other rising stars were in Martinsville. Right. You know, I'm looking at racing reference.info and, um, I'm, uh, you know, the number 60 only has one win in 354 starts. But the thing that kind of surprises me here, I'm looking at the list of drivers that have driven that number 60. The last guy that ever drove it was Dave Blaney, obviously Ryan Blaney's father Mm -hmm. in 2011. Then before that was Mike Skinner. Before that was Landon Castle, Boris said, I mean, some really decent names here. Jeffrey Bodine for a long time, Dick Trickle, Ted Musgrave, Jeffrey Bodine again, real long time for Jeffrey Bodine. And, you know, uh, again, we've talked about this with other car numbers in past episodes. This car number has not been used now. This is what, 11 years now. It's never been, it has not been used. And, again, I, I, I stick to my guns. I'll stick to my story on this one and I'm not going to change it. You know, when you, when you look at, uh, you know, a potential car number that becomes available, you know, and, and obviously the, uh, if a new team team came into the sport, they went to NASCAR and, you know, asked what number is available. Well, all they have to do is check race and reference info. And they see the number 60 is only one, one race. And they say, well, maybe we're going to skip this one. We'll go to something else that may have a little bit better history, but you know, again, only one win out of 354 starts. That's there's gotta be something to it. There's gotta be some kind of karma or kismet. Why the, you know, these certain numbers just don't win, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they just, some of these team owners, I guess, just don't think about it being that high up. And I've said before, a lot of team owners, uh, I've always heard that the lower the number, the more uh, success you have with it. That's why you have so many guys wanting those, one through 10 numbers. I don't know why, but a lot of, a lot of drivers left one through 10 and, and they've other than Richard Petty. I mean, he kind of kills that theory with 200 wins with 43, but mm-hmm. a lot of drivers have said, I love, I love one through 10. If I can get a low number, that's what I want. So right, right. that's the way it goes. In car yeah. number 60, the one win, tell us about that one. Ben. Yeah. And, uh, there's a driver by the name of Bill Rexford who, uh, won. I love the name of this race. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Poor man's 500. How about that? That is so cool. It came at Canfield fairgrounds in Canfield, Ohio. It was on Tuesday, May 30th, 1950. It was uh, race five of the 1950 NASCAR grand national series. Uh, First years in a hundred mile race at my Monroe County fairgrounds in Rochester, New York. Uh, and it was used on July 3rd, 1953. But, uh, as far as, uh, the one win, it was Bill Rexford and he went on to win the 1950 grand national championship too, by the way. That is interesting. Very, very interesting. But I, you're right. Poor man's 500. I mean, I don't think we could, I don't think NASCAR would allow that name to be, unless it was some kind of incredible sponsor, like a poor man's whatever, you know, that was sponsor raising. But that, that has got to be one of the best names I've ever heard for. Yes. Race. I'll tell you what, I mean, I, I just, I don't know where they come up with it. I don't know if they only charge a dollar per fan to come in. I don't know why. It's just, I just saw that and I laughed. I thought that that is the ultimate cool name for a race. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
Well, Ben, this has been, as usual, a great episode and, you know, a great topic. I mean, we were, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, what we were going to talk about this week and you came up with just an absolutely, you hit it out of the park. I mean, you grant, this is a grand slam uh, idea, you know, with talking about, again, we, I don't want to call it cheating. We'll just say pushing the envelope, working outside the rules. Uh, but as the old saying goes, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying that kind of thing too, <laughs> but, but really enjoy the, you know, the, the stories that you gave, you shared with us today and um, looking forward to episode 61 next week of Lifetime and NASCAR podcast. And, you know, I, I guess in closing here, Ben, you know, uh, we, we've seen uh, the predominance, if you will, of, of uh, pushing the envelope has been greatly reduced, but it's still got to be going on somewhere, somehow, some way out there where they just haven't been caught yet. That's, that's my impression. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're right. It's very, you know, somewhere, some on, let's say it this way, on some short track this coming Saturday night, somebody's going to push that envelope. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up episode number 60 of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. He's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thank you ever so much for listening, everyone. Big race weekend this week in Talladega, but a lot of great history that we've just covered over the last hour plus. And uh, you know, tell, definitely share this uh, episode with your friends, with your family members, especially those uh, race fans from back in the day. I mean, they would probably love to hear some of these stories because they those are the best stories of all. I mean, the, the, you know, the back in the day, when we were talking about when NASCAR was formed in the late 40s, all the way up until, you know, about 90, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2000s, even into the day. But, I mean, you can't beat some of those stories from back in the day. So, again, thank you ever so much for listening. Ben White, Jerry Bunkowski, Lifetime and NASCAR Podcast. We'll catch you next week with Episode 61. Take care, everyone. Have a good week. A Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mall. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows and don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewers Guide. The Weekly Viewers Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all on GroovyMotorsports.com. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.